Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Maria Schechtman. She is an LAS Distinguished Professor of Philosophy, as well as a member of the Laboratory of Integrative Neuroscience at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Her main areas of interest are personal identity, practical reasoning, and bioethics. She is the author of books like The Constitution of Selves and Staying Alive. So, Dr. Schechtman, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for having me. So, let's start perhaps with the most basic, even though it's probably complicated, question here. What is the self? That is an excellent question, and I do not have an answer, but I have thought about it quite a lot. So, um, you know, studying the self is really difficult, among other reasons, because that word means so many different things and gets used in so many different ways, because self is so fundamental. Um, we have a lot of everyday meanings of self. Philosophers study the self, sociologists study the self, psychologists study the self, economists study the self, right, and so on. Um, so I think somebody recently, there are people who count the number of uses of self, right, and there's usually an adjective, the economic self, the moral self, the social self, right. People talk about their past selves and their future selves. So I think the last count, there were over 50 um, uses of self or kinds of self in current academic use. Um, and so it's really difficult and, and it's really paradoxical because in everyday thought, right, yourself is something, it's what you are, right? So you can't get away from yourself. We have these things like wherever you go, there you are. And, and yet you can lose yourself and you can find yourself and you can somehow not be yourself. Um, so finding some tidy definition of what it is um, is basically impossible, I think. And so what is interesting, I found, is to, um, first of all, think about are there some really basic things that we think about the self that maybe pervade all of these other ideas of self or... Um, inform them, right? I don't think we're going to find like three things that are common to all elements of self or all conceptions of self, but you know, sort of where are we starting from intuitively when we think about the self? And there I just think um, that the idea of the self as something sort of private and mental and um, you know, my inner, there's something inner about the self. Um, now, whether it can be completely inner or whether it's something that needs to be expressed socially or can only exist in social circumstances, that's another question. Um, whether it's something that's transparent to you. So for some people, like myself is my consciousness. It's my, you know, the self is a subjective experience and whatever I experience that's, you know, myself, others, right, in psychoanalysis, many parts of the self may be hidden. So exactly what it means for it to be inner or subjective, but it has something to do with the subjective um, nature of who I am. And sometimes that's about experience, like I said, 
sometimes it's about my most fundamental traits, who I am most truly. Uh, and then I will just conclude by saying, and of course there are and have been for millennia people who say there is no such thing as the self, that it's an illusion um, and often a pernicious one. So I think there's, there's a lot of room to work here and just thinking about um, what are some of the different important ideas of the self and, and how do they interact? Because I think these different facets of the self support one another in important ways. So. But is the self the same as personal identity? And if not, what's the relationship there? Yeah, so again, depends who you ask. Um, <laughs> and, you know, the, I guess the, the real question would be, is the self the same as the person? And is the identity of the self the same as the identity of the person? Right. Um, because that can get complicated too, sorting that all out. So. John Locke, who really sort of sets the tone for a lot of philosophical discussion of self, but, but particularly of personal identity um, that continues to this day, he sees self and person as the same entity. So he says, you know, look, if you want to know what personal identity is, you have to know what a person is. He says a person is a thinking, intelligent being that can consider itself as the same self over time. So it's a, a thinking, reflective being that's aware of itself, that knows itself to continue, or knows or experiences itself to continue over time. And then he says a little bit later, and wherever a, for lack man, finds what he calls himself, there I think another may say is the same person. So at least the way I read Locke, um, what he says is basically that self and same thing, just one is from the first person point of view and one is seen from the outside. So myself is what I take myself to be, what I experience myself as, and others can know I have a self by seeing the way uh, that I act and by interacting with me then they know I'm a person in some sense to be a person is to be a self in this way. And for him, that's very connected um, to moral responsibility and interactions with other people. The self is a kind of being that can be a moral agent that can be responsible for what it does. That's why it's important in some sense, it's important that I be able to know when I'm the same self so I can do things like keep promises or be loyal to friends. And it's important for other people to know when I'm the same person. And it's also important that we all be on the same page <laughs> about, about that. So for those people, personal identity and the self are the same. For other people, they can come apart. Um, and a self is something more fundamental than a person. A self is something basic. So some philosophers say, look, being a self is just being an experiencing subject. We're experiencing, just being able to have experience, being the kind of thing, not any deep or rich kind of experience, just experience, pain, pleasure, hot, cold. Um, we ourselves, animals that have experienced ourselves, um, people with dementia ourselves, infants ourselves, and to be a person 
is something more complicated than that. To be a person requires all this other cognitive ability that allows you to reflect the things that Locke talked about, to reflect and reason and engage with others as a moral agent. So, right, for the, the Locke people, being a self is having all that, the cognitive bells and whistles and, and having those abilities to engage with others. To other people, there's a distinction um, and there's no consensus. <laughs> so, uh, um, And the, is the self a narrative? Because this is something that sometimes we hear from uh, cognitive scientists, but also philosophers of mind, right? Yes. Um, well, so I hold a narrative view of self. The question, is the self a narrative, right? That's a tough one because uh, partly there's just this big divide over those who think that a self is sort of entity-like, right? You know, myself is a thing that can go myself can survive the death of my body, myself might go to a different body. It's thing-like. Um, you might think it's something like an immaterial soul, but you don't have to, to think that, you know, mm -hmm. to think that it's some kind of, and others just think being a self is a property um, that some other kind of thing might have, like humans have the property of being selves or having selves, we sometimes say. Um, and so, the question, I mean, I think if, if you have any idea of the, the self as thing-like, I wouldn't describe that by saying the self is a narrative, because then you have to say, well, what kind of thing is a narrative? Right. Um, does it have to be written down? Does it have to be spoken? Right. But I would say the self is narrative and structure, that to be a self, is to be a creature that's narrative and structure in a way that you, you would say to be a story is to have a narrative structure. A story can be told, a story can be lived, a story can be written, it can be on film. Um, but what makes it a story is that narrative structure. And I, I think that that's true of self. So the part that I really like from Locke is this idea that the self is something that has to be extended in time, which is controversial. Um, and, you know, I have, I have more to say about why I think that the self is narrative and structure, but there, right, there are a lot of complicated questions that arise if you want to defend that view, um, obviously. So maybe, um, you can tell me what you'd like to hear more about with regard to it. Okay, so you mentioned two things there that I think are interesting to explore a little bit more. Mm -hmm. So, is the self unitary? Yeah, so, um, if you had gotten me, I've just been working on a, a, you know, sort of introductory thing on the self, and if you had gotten to me before I wrote it, I would have said absolutely yes. That's an important feature of the self, that it be unitary. Right. But now I think that's a more complicated question. I mean, partly it depends what, what do you mean by unitary? And so, I mean, 
it seems clear that, for instance, if you're thinking of the self, so that maybe the first thing to do is, is make a distinction between people who are thinking of the self as sort of an experiencer, a conscious subject of experience, and people who are thinking of the self in a more um, moral, social, uh, psychological sense where, you know, myself or my, you know, who I am, right? Who am I? I want to find myself. That's not, usually when people say that, they don't mean I want to be able to find myself as subjective experience. They want to know what do I really believe? What do I really value? What do I really want to do? What are my deepest characteristics that are expressive of who I am? So there's sort of this, you might say, true self and experiencing self divide to begin with. Um, and then each of these would have to be unified in a different way if we're talking about the self as being unified. So about the you know, experiencing self, you would say, well, does there have to be a sort of unified subjective experience? Am I, right, a perspective on the world that's, that's unified somehow? which is a very intuitive and, as it turns out, very mysterious idea, <laughs> I mean, to try to articulate what that is. Uh, and if you're asking about the self in terms of um, characteristics and true self, moral self kind of self, then the question is, do you have to have a sort of coherent set of values and commitments and characteristics to be a self, and if you think that self is a narrative, does thematic unity and, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, and I think that in both cases, there's some kind of unity that the self does have to have, but it may be a looser, more complicated form of unity than we tend to think. So people who say that there is no self very often they're either just saying that there is no, you know, sort of immaterial subject, there's no soul stuff, there's nothing more than this. Mm -hmm. uh, but often they're also saying something about the nature of our experience, which is that although we sort of think of it as a unified, coherent perspective at any time and an ongoing unified unbroken flow it's actually not really like that at all so okay it's difficult to explain how your experience could not be like you think it is but there are things that can be said about it there are ways that you can get people to attend uh, to their experience and see that it's not always completely unified I and mean, there's simple examples like when you're driving a well-known route home, talking to a visitor and deeply engaged in conversation and you do all the things you have to do to drive and you're not unconscious of them in many, you know, in many cases it doesn't make real sense to say you're unconscious of the things you attend to. You're not on autopilot, you can correct and adjust and there's a lot of flexibility but you're not really attending to it. And then if suddenly something comes up, you can switch your attention. So your attention at least is divided in ways that it's not clear that you have a completely unitary form of experience. Um, and then there are various, you know, sort of pathological conditions in which 
there are splits that some of them very rare, like multiple personality, now dissociative identity disorder, uh, or cases where, you know, the connections between the two hemispheres of the cerebrum are, are um, cut to treat epilepsy and in weird experimental conditions. I, I mean, I can talk more about those if those are of interest, but they're also very common forms of um, strangely disunified experience that are more like a dissonance between the emotional experience and the perceptual experience that people have in, in things like deeper, you know, instances of depersonalization where people can perceive quite well, but the there's an affective flatness that makes it seem as if somehow they aren't really having the experience entirely. So there are a lot of different ways in which, you know, the unity of, of conscious experience can get troubled. And then there's a lot of neurological evidence that people have liked to bring up, suggesting that there's sort of no place in the brain where different aspects of experience get unified. So right right now I feel like I'm having a single experience. It's, I'm hearing things, I'm seeing things, I'm feeling things, I'm noting the temperature of the room, I'm aware of my body. All of these things seem to be bundled up in one experience. So I've got one overall experience, um, but connected to the forms of disunity people can you know, phenomenologically or experientially, you know, have that I was talking about depersonalization, split attention and all that. Uh, correspondingly in complicated ways that as I'm sure you know, are still being studied, there's evidence from the brain that it, you know, that there's information being processed all over and it can be pulled together in different ways as needed, but it's not like there's some obvious place where all of this comes together to make a single conscious experience. So all of this has, you know, complicated the notion of what it means to have unified experience of the self. But, and then I will uh, end this part and I can go to the other part unless you have questions about this. But it's also true that like I'm having my experience and you're having yours. And there is a real difference between my knowing the whole, all the numbers of the, you know, locker combination and five different people who are spread out, each knowing one number. I can open the lock in the one case and not the other. So there's some sort of unity. It's maybe not as tight uh, as we just sort of presuppose it to be sort of unreflectively. Uh, and I think determining what that is, is really one of the most interesting questions of the self, and especially over time. Because I think when people in the personal identity debate, you know, what Locke's final, you know, view is for the person or self to continue, you need continuity of consciousness over time. And I think a lot of us have this idea, we want our consciousness to flow on. It would 
to, you know, have this flow of consciousness stop and somebody else have delusions of being me, you know, that were quite accurate as for me to really continue, right? There's a real difference between whether my consciousness continues or not. Turns out it's pretty difficult to say what that means because we all know that consciousness is gappy, we go to sleep, we forget things. So what that means is really hard to say. So um, that's the unity of, of experiencing subject and, and its complexity. I don't know if you have uh, anything you want to ask about that or if I should move to the other question. Uh, yeah, I was just going to say, I, I mean, right now at the very end uh, of what you're, of what you were saying, you mentioned one aspect that I was about to touch on that was uh, when it comes to the unity or the supposed unity of the self, I would imagine that uh, other things that are relevant here to this discussion is that even across our life, I mean, our memories are not uh, perfect. We forget lots of things. And even in our very early years, I don't think that anybody can remember anything from their first at least three years of life or something like that. So, uh, and then also, I guess that another thing that you usually, we usually attach to a sense of self is having, for example, coherent values and preferences. And I mean, people, even if they don't suffer from, from any sort of mental condition or neurological condition, it's not that rare that we feel very conflicted and uh, in different situations, different contexts, uh, apparently uh, manifest different values and preferences and all of that. So is that also relevant to this discussion? It's very relevant. Um, so, so I had said, you know, there's the self as experiencing subject. And then I think people, you could imagine that that could be unified um, without there being this coherence of value and so on, um, maybe without even memory, but that's more controversial because, right, we can know that our values changed. We can be sad that our values changed. So you might think, well, that doesn't require that kind of coherence, but there's this other notion of self, who I am, right? Uh, most fundamentally, which is being a self is more than just having experience. Being a self is, is something, it's having characteristics, it's having essential traits, it's having defining features. And, you know, so the, the personal identity literature in analytic philosophy would say, well, but that's a different question because, right, if my children go on and have the same values and orientation to life and so on that I had after I die. That doesn't mean I lived. That's a metaphorical sense of living on. That's different. Whereas if I change my values, I can still be alive. I'm a person who's continuing to live and has changed my values. So you might put it that way. I actually think there's more connection of the sort that you described and I'll, I'll try to say why in a minute. Then on the other side, um, the kind of position that you described about, you know, having continuity and coherence of values and 
remembering things and you know relationships and projects long-term mm -hmm. projects that you carry out to be a self is to you know do things in the world that is a very popular view less in you know that the subject thing is in what would be called the metaphysics of self what kind of thing is the self what is necessary for it to persist the other thing is is more about um sort of value and ethics and you know very broadly understood okay let's just say that you exist right if you have a if you're a human being continuing to live how do you make a self out of a human being how does an animal become a human self and there is where we talk about values and commitments and traits people who talk about that tend to think that um, you need a very strong form of coherence right and we do talk about people becoming someone else when they change in really fundamental ways. So it could be, you know, one instance where we talk about it is people who have suffered a, a trauma and they change a great deal. And so, you know, there's a lot of, I, I looked through a lot of stories of people who talked about, you know, loved ones who came home from active combat and said, you know, my son, husband, brother, daughter, sister, didn't come back, you know, a different person came back. Um, that can also happen when people's lives change in good ways, right? She's just, you know, someone else since she got out of that bad relationship or now that he's quit that horrible job and whatever, right? So there's that, and then also when people's values change, uh, they become a different person. There's a lot of, there's now a branch of philosophy called experimental philosophy, where basically the methodology of social science research is used to test philosophical questions. So what you learn at least is what people think about these questions uh, and a lot of work has gone on asking people, giving people a variety of scenarios to, to, to ask when does someone, you know, has someone become their true self or have they lost their self in this situation? And really robustly across the board and uh, not as cross-culturally as one would hope, but fairly cross-culturally, people seem to identify the true self with the best self. So for instance, if you say, if you tell a story, let's say of a, um, you know, a, an assassin who has decided that being an assassin is a terrible thing and he's gonna quit doing it, but then under pressures, you know, financial pressures or something, he takes another job as an assassin People will say, oh, he was weak of will. He didn't do what he really wanted to do. He lost himself. If you tell them the story of an assassin who loves being an assassin and thinks it's great and takes a job and goes out and just can't pull the trigger when you know it's a cute little kid or something, they'll say his true self came through and stopped him from doing it. And there's a lot of different versions of these kinds of scenarios and they keep suggesting that people think that the true self is the good self. 
I think that's pretty context relative. I don't think people always think that, right? We also have lots of novels and movies and years of, you know, psychoanalytic stuff that suggests there may be parts of the self that are unlovely and you have to acknowledge them. So it's a complicated question. But really, in most instances, what all of these different kinds of considerations suggest is that there has to be some core stability. There's some core set of facts that just stays the same. Um, and if they change, there's some, you know, essential you, even in the the Pixar movie Inside Out, there is a story about the core, the islands of personality, and if they collapse, that's it, you're someone else. And, and I mean, I think probably one of the clearest pictures of this is while people think the true self is the good self and talk about it as finding themselves, people also talk about conversion, religious conversion especially, as becoming someone else a discontinuity, a rebirth, you take a new name, you were born again and so on. So it's like you've become a different self. So that is a view. And then uh, I'm going to try to to articulate the, the sort of where I stand on all this. What, what I think and the reason that I really like the narrative approach to personal identity is I think it's too simple and too strong to say that you need that kind of coherence in order to be a self. And, and you talked also about conflicts. People think that a lot. You know, if you have sort of deep conflicts, you must resolve them to be a well-formed self, mm -hmm. right? You can't be torn like that. I actually don't believe that. I think it's sort of characteristic of selves like us to change sometimes quite a lot over time and to um, be conflicted in sometimes very deep ways. And, and I also think um, it's important to recognize the forms. I mean, they're just not random. They're, they're sort of character types of conflict that make us who we are. And it's important to not think you just become a different self or fail to be a self if there's that level of um, tension or incoherence. And, and uh, I think that's how we act, right? If, if the people who say, you know, my daughter went off to war and a different person came back, I mean, they don't really think it's a different person in some level, right? This is still somebody they're trying to reach in a way that they wouldn't try to reach just any uh, combat veteran with PTSD, let's say, right? There's something special about their relationship to this person, and it's painful um, that this person is so is in such bad shape precisely because she's that same little daughter that they loved and who was so carefree and who used to be so happy and you know, who is so excited about going off to, you know, so, so I think we have to um, accommodate somehow in our sense of self, both the sense that there really is a single self here, but also a sense that there are some kinds of divisions and conflicts that are especially tragic, difficult, um, 
germane to the self. And I think narrative can do that, and I can say why, but maybe you want to ask a question. Wanna... No, I was just wondering, I mean, if even if people sometimes have these conflicts, I mean, if they really matter that much to people, I, I mean, because, of course, uh, philosophers and people who are interested in philosophy, like myself, can think about these questions, if the self should be this or that. But I was just wondering if people, generally speaking, and even the philosophers themselves or people who perhaps think a little bit more about these kinds of questions, uh, if we really need to have that sort of coherence for us to function properly, psychologically speaking, I mean, if we even to start off with pay attention to that. I mean, because sometimes it just feels to me that even talking about myself, that perhaps many times I contradict myself, but I don't really pay that much attention to it or don't even notice it. And so that doesn't really matter that much. I, I'm not sure if what I'm saying makes sense or not. No, I, I completely agree that, you know, we expect sort of fluctuations. And I mean, it, so now if we're talking about sort of robust human selves, um, yeah. we expect some ambiguities and some incoherence. And I think it's one of the things that makes human selves really interesting that there's more to them that meets the eye, right? So people have hidden depths and you learn things about them that surprise you sometimes and you learn things about yourself that surprise you sometimes. Uh, and, and I think we also have to learn to live with a lot of today I feel this way and yesterday I felt that way. There are obviously conflicts that are um, deep and disturbing for people, right? Mm -hmm. They're like fundamental, uh, you know, I'm thinking of leaving the religion that has been the center of my life. Um, you know, I've immigrated with my family and I want to assimilate and they don't. I mean, you know, there are things where it's really, you have to make some choices and it's difficult and there are people who can compartmentalize and should be addressing the fact that you know you can't be the the you know guard at the concentration camp by day and play with your kids you know you should there should be some dissonance there that should make you question your values but i don't think that that prevents you from being a single self and so the question is where does the unity come from then right? Mm -hmm. Because there is such a thing as unity of the self. Uh, there might even be such a thing, I guess, as total disintegration of the self. I'm not sure about that. Uh, we can think about that. So the question is where the unity comes from. And here is where I think that narrative can help a lot. Um, because one of the things I always think, you know, in many of the venues where I read, it's common for people to say that something like a religious conversion is you know someone becoming a, a new person or a new self mm -hmm. and i just think that's wrong right and the reason i think it's wrong uh there are a lot of them 
but one is that the person on the other side of the conversion, it's critical to understanding who they are, that they have this history, that, you know, the convert who, you know, sees the light was someone who lived a completely different life before, mm -hmm. right? So the Buddha is the Buddha, right? Because the Buddha wasn't always the Buddha and enlightenment was found and, you know, uh, Paul is Paul or Augustine is Augustine because they had this transformation and the transformation is part of who they are now. So if the, you know, if the person who is a convert and says, I used, you know, I used to be a sinner, that's important for them if they just say, but I'm not anymore. Like that has nothing to do with me. That's irrelevant. Right. Actually, when you read the accounts people give of their conversion, the way they used to live, the burden of it, the you know possibility of its returning at any time, that's all a deep part of whatever their spirituality is now. Um, someone who is you know was an addict and has been sober for 30 years, right? If they go to a 12-step program, at least. They start out by saying, I am an addict because there's a sense that, you know, this is a critical, you know, it's a critical part of who I am now sober that I have this history, even if there's been a big change. And so I also think that, so, so that's one, that's over time people who change. And then for inner conflicts, um, you know, I think we do try to understand the self through people's um, characteristics, through their core characteristics, but that it can be a core characteristic of somebody that they're conflicted in particular ways, right? That, I mean, many protagonists of novels, right? Their whole thing is this conflict that they're living out and working through over the course of their life. So, to say that, you know, as, as some people do, and you have to resolve that in, in order to be a well-formed self, I think you're a perfectly well-formed self. You're a self who's grappling with this conflict and, you know, trying to decide, you know, can I reconcile it? Do I just have to live with it? If I live with it, what kind of compromises do I have to make? That's all part of being a self, and it's something that takes place over time. So I do think... Um, you know, the way that I, I currently am think about how this all works is basically, and there are a lot of things in here um, about sort of the temporality and sociality of the self, so I'll say it, and then you can follow up on the parts you want, that being a self is, in my mind, something, I, I don't think it's a total social construct, but it's something we do with other people. It involves... Uh, certain kinds of interactions with others, and that's important and and sustains us as selves, but also allows us to be selves through expressing ourselves to others. And I just think the way it, it works with humans is in our social interactions at some fundamental level, we see others as single being single selves, single people throughout their whole human life. 
Um, we know that there can be a lot of change. We know a lot of things can happen. But if, you know, my daughter comes home from war and I don't recognize anything about her personality, I still think that's my daughter and look what they've done to her, right? So, so my feeling is we, we see people as uh, single beings over their whole life in social contexts and our infrastructure. And this is, you know, there's a lot of cultural variability about what that looks like. So, you know, in some cultures, the we has a much, right, being the self as, as part of a we has a much more prominent role than others. Um, in some, you know, cultures, your personal human history is more important than others, and some your ancestral history is more important than others. So there's a lot of, you know, details to work out. But I do think that at some fundamental level, and for probably good biological and selective reasons, right, we take a, a human life as, a, as an important unit. But there is a lot of change over human life, and some of it is predictable, and some of it isn't. So what I think is that the task of being a self is negotiating that, right? That throughout your life, you're always negotiating that. Your history is there, and it's something that you have to have some kind of relationship to, and your future, you hope, is there, and you have to have some kind of relationship to that. And whatever you think about your relationship to your past, other people might think differently, and you have to take that into account. So you just think of something like, you know, all these cases of people where they've been living exemplary lives, but it turns out that they did something horrible in their past. Um, you know, other people see that as something you did. And so in some sense, it's something you did. It's going to affect what happens to you. You have to own it in that way. You're expected to own it, to take responsibility for it, and then think about how you can incorporate it going forward. So my view is roughly that the unity comes from the biological and social constraints put on us that interact, but that it's a funny kind of unity because subjectively and in our actions, we're always having to try to sort it out and turn it into a coherent story. And then last thing I'll say is just, but if you read literature, so people who say coherent story, you know, people who don't like the narrative view, it's like, that's too simple. Lives aren't that simple. They aren't that tidy. But what I say is, well, if you, if you read literature, instead of say, you know, pop boiler detective stories or romance novels, stories can be pretty complicated. Mm -hmm. And they can have more than one theme and they can, you know, protagonists certainly of stories can undergo immense changes. I mean, a static protagonist would be really boring in a, in a novel. So, so thinking of our lives as narratives in that way and of the self as narrative in that way and as uh, being a self as sort of simultaneously being author character and, uh, and um, critic sort of pulls all that together. So dig in where you will. <laughs> yeah, uh, when you mentioned the social aspects, uh, I was thinking that perhaps at least when it comes to that sort of uh, 
sometimes of course not all the time but sometimes we feel that need of having a coherent self couldn't it be the case that at least i'm not saying that all the time but at least a good chunk of the time we feel that need because we feel the need to justify ourselves to other people like for example someone points out something that is incoherent or apparently incoherent and we feel the need to justify that or they say that we are a particular kind of person and we don't like the the sort of social connotation that is attached to that label for example and so we maybe are forced to rethink about how we will uh, talk about ourselves to other people or present ourselves to other people and uh, I mean of course Perhaps this is more evident in, for example, Eastern than Western cultures, but um, at least in cultures like Jap Japan, China, Korea, and, and places like that, the self seems to be more relational than individualistic, let's say. I, I mean, again, I, I was just commenting generally on the uh, the social aspects of the self, and I don't know if the what I just said makes sense or if it's something that you also think about or not. No, very much so. And, and I think that the self is more relational in the West than people Admit. acknowledge, <laughs> right? So absolutely, I mean, there's sort of two aspects to it. I mean, one is, I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, something I haven't touched on at all in this conversation is self-knowledge and self-deception. Uh, so part of what you're saying is, um, I mean, it, well, I, I, yeah. So I agree with you completely that sometimes we feel the need for coherence because if, if someone calls you out on being incoherent, mm -hmm. you feel that you need to, I agree with you, that we take that as a criticism and we feel we need to give some answer and explain how it all fits together, maybe something like that. Is that what you mean or do you yeah, mean? Yeah, because I mean, at least I think this is true. If not, please tell me, but I think that it's, um, much easier for us to feel like we are in trouble and in, in need to justify ourselves if it's other people pointing those issues than ourselves, just to ourselves. Yeah, it depends who you are and how internally self-flagellated you are, but yeah. yeah. So, right. So I, I, I agree. So here maybe is a kind of example of the kind of thing you're thinking about. Um, I think I'm a really considerate friend and I think of myself as a great friend, but maybe a lot of people can point out to me um, circumstances in which I was not particularly considerate and I can try to rationalize them. Mm -hmm. But at some point, Right, I might just have to say, you know, they've brought up a lot of cases where I did not really act, where my conception of myself 
uh, was not really what I thought it was and or was I mean my conception of myself is what I thought it was but my conception of myself was not accurate to what I was doing I was not um, living the way I think that I am mm -hmm. so maybe I'm not as considerate as I thought I was <laughs> um, and then maybe then I have to you know do something like either say who cares you know I want to be considerate but if I'm not whatever or I have to think I really have to be more careful or I really have to think why I'm behaving this way I really have to bring my behavior in line with my values something like that is that what you have in mind or mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah 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 because I, I was thinking that yeah, I mean, there are situations where we take uh, criticisms from other people more or less seriously. Perhaps it depends on the sort of consequences that being a particular kind of person would have. I mean, if it's some just minor thing that for some reason someone doesn't like, perhaps we just don't care at all about it. I mean, if I'm like that, who cares? It doesn't have any important consequences, but perhaps if it's something that already has to do with uh, character traits and particularly if they are connected to perhaps some um, moral or, norm or normative stuff, then that's perhaps where we pay more attention to it or think it's more important to pay attention to it. Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree. Um, and there's so much to say there. I'm really trying to think of, of where to start. I mean, one of the things that I'm thinking, which maybe takes us too far afield, but but let's see if it will work, is that when I teach Introduction to Philosophy, you know, one of the first things I've come to realize over the years is that the activity of philosophy is a strange one. And students coming out of high school here have not really been prepared for it. And so I used to go through all these arguments and objections and stuff. And then after a couple of years, someone finally, you know, just they said that they were completely confused because I'd say something and then I'd say it was false. And then I'd say something else. And then I was like, well, when are we going to learn the stuff that isn't false? And I was like, well, no, it's not like that. So now I always start and, and you'll see how this connects to what you said. Now we start by saying, well, in philosophy, we have arguments, but they're not like fights and they're more like legal arguments, uh, but they're not. And they're aimed at answering questions, giving an answer to a question. Is it like this or is it like that? But they never answer the questions. They may say they answer the question, but there's always a million holes in the argument. I mean, we can't answer questions like science does insofar as science doesn't, you know, but there are some things like, you know, the atomic number of gold, you can just find that out. Um, we, we can't do that. So what are we doing? And the example I always give them is kind of an example of the kind of um, situation you're talking about. I say, suppose you have a couple and they're fighting because one says, you're so insensitive, you hurt my feelings all the time. And the other one says, you're just too sensitive. You're oversensitive. I'm really nice and I say supportive things all the time and you're oversensitive. And, and my, you know, 
claim is, I don't know if they believe me or not, that in most instances, it may be that in some cases, one of them is right and the other one is wrong. Um, but in a lot of instances, there's something right about what they're both saying. There's something wrong about what they're both saying. And saving the couple is not going to involve determining who's right and who's wrong. It's going to be each of them coming to understand why the other one sees things the way they do. And so expanding their own perspective a little bit. And so I think a lot of the kinds of um, things you're talking about, not all, but a lot, uh, where other people are teaching me about myself are that kind of negotiation, right? That there is, you know, people can make it clear to you when you're not living up to your conception of yourself and your values or the societal conception. Maybe you hadn't even thought about it, but they're just saying, hey, look, you know, I mean, whatever it is, you know, they, they might just say, you know, you realize you're being really racist and they're like, oh, I never thought about it. It's like, well, look, look at the jokes you tell, look at the, you know, look at the decisions you make about who to hire, look at, right? I mean, there's a lot of work on that kind of thing. And um, somebody saying that to you can open your eyes to a bunch of things about your behavior and how it looks to other people that you either didn't bother to think about or weren't able to think about or were rationalizing to yourself or whatever um, and help you see yourself from a, a broader perspective and, and a sort of more comprehensive and accurate one so you, you learn things. But in the best of these kinds of exchanges, I think, um, you know, even if the other person is right that you're being racist, this business of just going around and labeling people and saying you're bad and you need to own this tends not to be very effective, mm. right? Yeah. So the other person um, maybe learns something about what you were, th you know, how the world looked to you when you were acting that way that may in no way justify you're acting that way, but gives insight into who you are, right? right. Um, and so I think the social construction of identity is in that way, I mean, the social aspects, I don't think it's thoroughly, some people of course do think that identity is, is just a social construct, um, and that can mean a lot of different things. Uh, there is no self there, there's just, you know, the performances of certain social ideas of, of a self or how other people see you. I don't think that, but I think there's a, an important social component. Unless you're getting that give and take with other people, um, you can't develop it. So, I mean, part of I mean, there's sort of two things going on and the connection between them, I don't know. The, the stuff I was saying before about incoherence um, or not needing complete coherence, what I had in mind there is just something like, you know, you go to a wedding and there are people from all the phases of the bride and groom's life and they give toasts and tell stories 
and some things you hear and you're like, oh, that's him, that's her. Yeah, I recognize that. Others are like, that's really surprising. I had no idea that, you know, you were doing this or that. And at the end of it, you might say of the person, wow, I don't even know how that all fits together. You know, she's really complicated. And that's not an insult saying she's really complicated, saying that somebody's, you know, multifaceted and mm -hmm. complex and enigmatic, right? That's not necessarily saying there's something wrong with them. That makes them, you know, intriguing. I mean, depending on the details. So there, that was what I meant by, you know, we have to tolerate a certain amount. But I absolutely agree with you. There are some kinds of incoherence that are really disturbing, especially having to do with, you know, important values and behaviors. Um, and there are some uh, forms of self-deception that are really common. Um, and, and also, I just think, like, our values are not always fully formed, right? We have values, but they're kind of inchoate. And it's only in going out and trying to live them and having people give you feedback on it that you can sharpen them and understand better what it is you're after and that, that helps right, make you coherent. So I think because of the social aspect and also I think for psychological reasons, but probably also related to the social aspect, there are some, there are always pressures to try to understand how it all fits together um, and to resolve some kinds of incoherence. So it's, yeah. So, I mean, I don't know if, if this is just making it too complicated, um, but I, I think it's compatible to say a certain amount of incoherence and ambiguity is just part of the human condition and being a self involves tolerating that, uh, being a mature self and to say, but there's this whole system in place to try to enforce coherence in certain domains, right? A certain level of coherence in certain domains and contexts and so on. Right. So uh, one last question then, uh, can we develop selves or selves in virtual worlds? That is a great question, and it's one I've thought a tiny bit about, uh, and it's something I don't know a ton about because I don't spend time in virtual worlds a lot. <laughs> um, because if I if I started, I would never come out. <laughs> I know myself that well, right? Yeah. But but I did once write a paper on this, and it was a million years ago, and it was on Second Life, which I don't even know if it still exists anymore. Not but there sure. were a lot of things that I thought about in that context um, that I think are really sort of relevant to what I was just trying to say. And um, I'll, I'll just say a few of them and then try to pull them together. One of the most interesting to me was someone was talking about, and we were sort of just talking about this before we started in terms of, you know, these conferences that are on four continents and stuff, is that you can virtualize space, but not time. And so, um, you know, the thing about being a self in a virtual world is the first thing to notice is, 
as I understand it, people are only selves in virtual worlds that have a kind of rich, complicated social structure within them. Mm -hmm. So it involves other people. So, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of, you know, immersive stuff, I, I, not social media so much. That maybe is a different question, but social media has social in the title. So <laughs> uh, it's also a, a rich, in some sense, social world. I mean, that's a, a, another big question that I think we're going to have to answer. Um, so the, the importance of being able to virtualize space and not time is that it made it impossible for people to just be in this other world and live there because they also lived in the world that they were in and it might be the middle of the night or it might be the time your kids are coming home for, you know, like to, to, to match up the times so that you could have a social world with people who are in all different time zones was very complicated. So there's that. And there's also the idea that there is a sort of larger structure within which all these online selves um, have to live, right? Um, they have to, and this is, this is the same thing that I say about dissociative identity disorder, right? You can't have multiple selves in a single human life that are like typical selves because they're going to have to have lost time because they won't be able to hold a job, right? Because their finances are going to be a total mess because some of them are, are buying things that other ones can't afford, right? I mean, so, so I think, um, there's something you can be in these sort of, you know, immersive VR contexts. You can be something very like a self, but there's always a background of a broader self that this has to find its way into. You have to eat, right? Mm -hmm. um, you have to do all these other things. And so, my thought about that is it's sort of grist for my narrative mill that you can be in some sense multiple different selves within being a single self because there's an overarching story about it but just sort of two thoughts um one was what what was really interesting to me when I was reading about Second Life. I mean, I never, I, I, I tried to try it out, but I was incompetent and couldn't do it. Um, is that there were all these disputes, right? There was a lot of crime, apparently, in Second Life and a, and a lot of sort of viciousness. And there was really a different understanding. I mean, there were all these disputes where people were writing and one person would talk about, you know, how they were assaulted in Second Life and they wanted, they wished they could bring criminal charges and, you know, somebody should be put in jail. And the other person wrote back and said, it's a game. <laughs> you were playing a game. But it was clear that some people, they very carefully built up their avatars, they invested a lot of time and money and fashioning them and giving them a life and, you know, starting businesses and doing all these things. 
And to the other person, it was a game. So for one person, that was them, you know, in some sense. And to the other person, it wasn't, or at least they said it wasn't. And so I think there is a really complicated story. And insofar as selves are social things, how this all develops um, going forward, I think maybe there will be a way to have virtual selves. I can't completely imagine it, but that's that's something that's going to be negotiated. And in terms of you know social media and online um, persona, right, and catfishing sort of stuff, to me that doesn't yet seem like a different self. It seems like a, a self trying to you know use tools to do um, things in the real world. But but I don't know because I don't live in that world, so I may not understand it entirely. And then final thing on, on just sort of uh, virtual stuff is that I have wondered though, um, and this is a thing, this is a project on which I'm just embarking really, so a while ago I wondered, since I have this narrative view and think that being a self is having a narrative sense of how your life is going, um, I wonder when people start just posting random events and not selecting them in any way, now I'm eating this, now I'm going to the store, right? Whether that was gonna ultimately change our sense of, of how to think about our lives. And what I'm thinking about now, because I've been working a lot recently on memory and self, um, but I haven't yet thought about memory technologies. So, I mean, my first thought when I heard about life logging, where you just record everything, is, well, that's not how our how memory and identity are connected. Just seeing everything you did all day from your perspective, memory is selective and it's reconstructive, but that's part of the work of building a self, right? That it's not just recapitulating the past, it's contextualizing it in terms of what's happened since and, and where we are now. So it's never really bothered me that memory is reconstructive. I mean, obviously in a courtroom or something you need to, to know, sometimes you really need to know, but otherwise I think that's the work of building a self is to keep updating your memories and contextualizing them. And, and so what's interesting to me now is while I don't do any social media, I do have a smartphone that gives me albums of all the, you know, the, it makes albums out of my pictures for me according to some algorithm that, you know, somebody came up with. And they are not necessarily pictures I would put together, but I, I recognize, you know, something happens to me when I view them. And so it seems like some of the work of selection and interpretation is now going on on our phones and elsewhere um, in terms of our memories and how to put them together and think about them and how to group people and what that's going to do eventually to the sense of self, I think is really interesting. Right. Uh, so, just before we go, would you like to tell people where they can find you and your work on the internet? Uh, I'm not on the internet. <laughs> so, 
Yeah, um, I am just at the UIC website. I really am kind of a Luddite in this way. The only website I have is the website. Um, some of my work, I mean, certainly on all the usual academic, um, you know, Google Scholar um, and so on, uh, you can find lists of my work uh, and my email is available there and on the UIC philosophy department website. And so while I am not good about posting my work, um, I'm always happy to send it. So I'm, you know, happy to, and maybe the thousands and thousands of people who want my work, it gets overwhelming, then I'll start posting it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I will be leaving some links to that in the description box of the interview. And Dr. Schechtman, thank you again so much for taking the time to come on the show. And it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Oh, it's really been fun. Thank you so much for inviting me. It really is great. And uh, yeah, I'll be interested to see how it turns out. <laughs> okay. Great. And uh yeah, I'll be interested to see how it turns out. <laughs> Hi guys, thank you for watching this interview until the end. If you like what I'm doing and to keep the channel sustainable, please consider supporting me on Patreon or PayPal. All of the links are in the description box of this interview. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check the website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Karen Litzke and Blanchett, Perga Larson, Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whittingberg, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollis, Ian Ricalania, John Connors, Paulina Varen, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Ruth Gervoz, Wo Weingard, Rebecca Neuberger, Goldstein, Dan Demetri, Robert Windegar, Rui Narcio, Arthur Coe, Zuc, Mark Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Columbus, Jorge Pinha, Phil Cavana, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguanzo, Michael Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernadini, Alexander Dunbauer, Fergal Cusson, Ivan Bodrin, Kuala Herzog, Don Ross, Jonathan Leibrandt, Aslan Bullet, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W. João Oira, Tom Hamel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Dejda Araujo, Romain Roach, Dermitri Gregoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adana Rosmani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostazewski, Nelek Bach, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Al Ortiz, Guy Madison, Gary G. Hellman, John Linares, Lida Cosmides, Saima Afzal, Adrian Gage, Nick Golden, Paulo Tolentino, João Barbosa, Jules Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Pons Cortez, Ursula Litzke, Dennis Cook, Scott, Zachary Fish, Tim Duffy, Todd Shackleford, Sunny Smith and John Wisman. My producers is our web, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafiniak, Luis Caetano, Tom Wagner, Dan Curtis Dixon, John Linares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Gidi, Sardis Francis, Thomas Trumbull, and Nuno Welder, and my executive producers, Michel Rugieski, Rosie, James Pratt, Matthew Lavender, Sergio Codriano, and Bogdan Canivets. Thank you for all. <laughs>